Let's unite our hearts in a word of prayer to ask the Lord's presence tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, with great reverence and awe, for you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and there is none like you. And Lord, we thank you for such a great salvation. Lord, we thank you for the great price paid by the Son of God as he died on that Calvary cross for our substitution, for our redemption. Lord, how he shed his blood that we may be cleansed from sin, from the power of sin, from the flesh, from all things evil, by that precious, precious blood. And we thank you, Lord, for the resurrection, for that seal of approval by the Father. Lord, we thank you for that seal of our pardon, our justification, as he rose again from the dead. But that was not all, for he ascended unto heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, our high priest, the one who intercedes for us, the one who's made it possible that we might have free and total access to the throne room of our God. Lord, these are indeed marvelous, marvelous things and great, great news. And we thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for all that you've done for us. And Father, we come before you tonight with one intent, one purpose, that you may be glorified and honored in our midst. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us, that you may be very much present in this meeting, in the heart of all present. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would be and guide and support and strengthen our sister Diana, as she brings her testimony, and our brother Andrew, Lord, that you would uh, anoint him and that you would allow the word of God to go out with much strength and assurance straight to our hearts. I ask, Lord, that you would be with us tonight, that your Holy Spirit would revive us once again. Lord, I pray, I pray for each and every single young adult in this room and maybe some that could not be here. Lord, I pray earnestly that you would, Lord, touch their hearts, that you would strengthen them for the world, for the time that we live in. Lord, that you would fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit, that there may be a holy decision in each soul to go on with God. Lord, that there may be a deep and thorough dependence upon Christ. Lord, that the object of each heart, the object of the heart might be Christ alone. Lord, help us. Do this for us, we pray, to your honor and glory. And I pray for every young adult and young person in this room. Lord, for all that lies ahead of them in the present and in the future, whether it be at school, whether it be, Lord, in higher education or in a trade or whatever it may be or if they're already working in the workplace, well, I pray that you would guide each and every one of them, Lord, to the perfect will of God, to the perfect will of God, Lord, that, we, that none of them may make shipwreck of their lives, 
that none of them may make choices that, Lord, would, they would have to reap later. Lord, I pray. I pray that you would strengthen and keep and preserve each one to go on with God. Lord, whether it's choices to do with career, whether it's, Lord, the, the, the great choice of life, Lord, to find a spouse in life. Lord, all of these things are so important. So we pray, Lord, that you would guide and direct to your honor and glory. But Lord, I would also like to pray for those young people, Lord, that are the sons and daughters and grandchildren, maybe, of a lot of people in this congregation, and maybe even from all the other congregations represented here, that perhaps they've backslidden. Lord, that they're not here. They're not, they're not in the house of God. They're not praying. They're not seeking you, Lord. Or they've never come to Christ. They've never professed faith. Lord, we ask and pray that you'd grant household salvation, that you would bring all of those young people to the foot of the cross in repentance. Lord, we pray, we ask, Lord, grant us household salvation. Revive us again and help us, O God, Lord, to your honor and glory. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would be with us and continue to be with us. Lord, as we pray tonight and we ask and thank you again for keeping all the young people and Pastor Saunders and the bus safely back and forth. We thank you for the outreach that was done. We ask, Lord, that you would use that, Lord, that it be seed sown in some soul. Lord, all these things we bring before you and we ask, Father, that you would bless and we pray this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Diana, I will ask you to come and share your testimony with us at this time. So I've got all my notes written down. It's just easier for me to keep track of things. Otherwise, I'll end up rambling on or I might miss something important. But uh, it is a great honor to be here to speak to you all today. Um, and very unexpected surprise in my life. Um, all my life, I, I didn't know Christ. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was an enemy of God. I wasn't raised in a Christian household. And I never would have expected, sorry the cliche term, in a million years to be in a church, let alone call myself a Christian. So um, I'll just get right into it and share my testimony of how God saved me. Uh, three and a half years ago, my life looked a lot different than it does today. Three and a half years ago, I was a practitioner of witchcraft and a psychic medium, a drug user, and a lover of all things unnatural and harmful. I regularly communicated with familiar spirits and would give psychic readings to people all around the world. My plans before Jesus radically changed my heart was to continue giving readings and to open up an occultic shop where I would sell occultic paraphernalia and conduct my readings there. I remember the day clearly, October 19th, 2019, the day that Jesus saved me from the clutches of demonic spirits. 
I'll never forget that sense of peace that enveloped me as soon as I asked God to forgive me and save me. It was as if a blanket of peace gently wrapped around my very soul. I had never experienced anything like this in my life. Pure peace. Peace of mind. There were a series of events that led up to me descending into that, the, those forbidden practices that I found myself so entrenched in. Things that I could not share the first time I gave my testimony here in church as my young son was sitting in the chairs listening on and I didn't want to frighten him. But one day he will know of the full and miraculous story of how Jesus saved his mommy. Two life-changing experiences happened to me around the age of 10. One was I was molested by a relative, and this event and many more traumatic events would, would follow, which would only continue to shatter me into unrecognizable pieces. Looking back, I can see how the enemy used these events to their advantage in hardening my heart towards God. It's hard to say it, but I did hate God at the time, for decades. I couldn't understand why these things were happening, or how they could happen to a child. Around the same time, I experienced my first paranormal encounter with a spirit. I remember it clearly. I was laying in my bed at night, trying to fall asleep, when something appeared in the doorframe and started making its way toward me. You can imagine how terrifying that would be at 10 years old to see this and not really fully understand what it was that you're seeing. This being was glowing, a type of bright light all around it. I was frozen and couldn't look away. And the strangest thing started to happen. The spirit's face slowly became recognizable. It resembled my grandmother. Now for everyone in this room, major red flags should be going up. What did God teach us about the enemy? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, it tells us, And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. I wasn't raised in a Christian household, so I didn't know how to properly arm myself against this. And when I told my parents, they just chalked it up as an overactive imagination. What the familiar spirit told me next was that my grandma was going to pass away the next day. The very next morning comes around, and I can remember sitting in the living room floor and the phone rings. My family received a call from overseas informing them that in fact my grandma had passed away. I didn't know it at the time, but this encounter planted a deadly seed of deceit in my mind. I wondered how could I have known of future events or details of strangers' lives? Or how could I see and communicate with spirits that other people couldn't see. And trust me when I'm saying this, I'm not being metaphorical at all. 
these things exist. The things that are talked about in scripture is 100% true. There are spirits out there that are deceitful above anything else beyond our human imagination. Many more encounters and events with spirits would happen, and these deceptive spirits convinced me that I was gifted, that I was able to perceive supernatural things that other people couldn't, that I was a psychic medium and that I could use my gift to heal and give messages to people. It's difficult to condense all that I experienced over the last two decades of my life, but for the sake of time, I'll do my best. My life for the next two decades would speedily descend into unimaginable depths of darkness. Around the age of 15, I did a very dangerous practice of summoning a spirit, which to my horror worked. The spirit came through the channel that I was using and took full possession over me. What proceeded was as close to hell as I would ever experience. I was propelled to worship demons. I got heavily involved in satanic groups, abused drugs and alcohol, regularly mutilated my body, and eventually attempted suicide. I had several failed attempts and thanks to God Almighty that he intervened when he did. Looking back, I honestly can't explain how I survived one of those attempts particularly. I shouldn't have. But God is a miracle worker. Things were so bad that the doctors were trying to help me to no avail because after all, this was a spiritual problem. They finally gave me an ultimatum. Either I would receive electroshock therapy or be institutionalized for a whole year. And that's what I chose, to be sent away. After regaining my sanity from the torment of dealing with demons, life slowly seemed to head back to a path of healing. But the enemy had no intention of letting go of me so easily. After all, I had invited them in, and they had no plans of leaving. I fell right back into occultic practices and eventually became a fully practicing medium. I had no idea, but all this time, God was working behind the scenes. Looking back, I can remember all the times he sent people to minister to me and to share the gospel, like you guys did today. Only to be met with a backlash of profanities, which I hope wasn't the case for you guys today, but that was me. But God was patient in retrieving me back to himself, his lost sheep soon to be safe in his arms. A year before I got saved, I had the most incredible and profound encounter with Christ in the form of a dream. This encounter left me searching and wondering about this Jesus. On October 19th, 
2019, I would find out. By divine timing, I had a conversation with an ex-witch who shared the gospel with me. And it was in that moment, and again, I can't quite explain it, it was as if I had heard the gospel for the first time, clearly. It made sense, and I knew it was the truth. In that moment, I professed that Jesus is God, and I asked him to set me free. It was at that moment that I felt that incredible peace, peace that can only come from my Lord and Savior. I was set free. Everything I had done, everything that I had ever involved myself in was washed away. I cannot comprehend that level of mercy and love. This is the God we serve a God who is so willing and quick to forgive. I want to end it there. There is so much more that I could say, but I hope that this testimony blesses you, encourages you, strengthens your faith, because God can work miracles, and our God is amazing. And I pray that if your personal relationship with Jesus is not as close as you would like, it's not too late to call out to him. I'm proof of that. He will not reject anyone. He will not reject you. Thank you guys for your time listening. Thank you very much, Diana. God is a working, miracle-working God, it is. He is for sure. Brother Simpson, would you like to come and share with us tonight's message? Could you sing just maybe one verse of the hymn? Sure. Just before, just to... we'll, uh, we'll sing 600, if that's okay. And we'll just do the first and the last verse as we come to God's word this evening. The hymn number 600, we rest on thee our shield and our defender. Let's sing this on to the Lord together. Hymn 600, the first verse and the last verse. Thank you. Shall be the praise. 
seated. Well, may I invite you to take the word of God, please, and turn with me this evening to the book of the Acts, the book of Acts, and we're going to read together from the chapter 15. I want to read the entirety of this chapter together. We'll be making some references to it uh, through the message. Acts chapter 15, and let's begin our reading this evening at the verse number 1. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenix and Samaria declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. And put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved, even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought, among the Gentiles by them. And after they held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written, After this I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore my sentence is, that we trouble them not, which from among the Gentiles are returned to God, but that we write unto them, that they should abstain from pollutions of idols, and from fornication, and from things strangled, and from blood, For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner, 
the apostles and elders and brethren, saying, Greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your soul, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication, from which if ye keep yourselves ye shall do well, fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles. Notwithstanding it pleased Silas to abide there still. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And some days after, Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city, where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. But Paul thought it not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sealed on to Cyprus. And Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, confirming the churches. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts tonight. Would you bow with me please in prayer again? Let's ask the Lord to minister to our hearts. We need we need the working of the Holy Spirit in these meetings. And I would encourage you as your head, or, head is bowed and your eyes are closed that you would pray this evening for the Holy Spirit to work and to move and to speak to our hearts tonight. Gracious and eternal God, we come into thy presence this evening. We confess, O Lord, our weakness. Lord, we're reminded of it every time when we stand behind this pulpit. But Father, we pray that you would take the message tonight, which is as a burning fire within my heart. And Lord, you would help me to present the word and to present the burden that you have placed upon my soul. Lord, it is my earnest desire that these young people would find and Lord, stay in biblical churches. We pray, O God, that they would not wander. They would not, O Lord, get tossed about with every wind of doctrine. They would not become discouraged and fall by the wayside. But the Lord, that they would remain in our church. And that they would grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us this evening. Take from us tiredness and and lethargy of body and of mind. And help us, O Lord, in this time that we have to hear thy word. For we ask it for Christ's glory 
and for his kingdom's sake. Amen. Amen. So far in our series together, we have considered on the first evening on Wednesday night the structure of the church. And then last evening we considered together the saints' involvement in the church. And we come to understand together that the structure of the church is this. That a true church will have pure doctrine. That a true church will have proper governance over it. And it will have biblical worship. And that is the type of church that you ought to seek as a young person to then get involved in. We then considered what it meant to get involved in that church. It's not just about service alone. But it begins with your own sanctification. With taking those steps of discipleship there in Acts 2 beginning at verse 40. And then you have the opportunity then to serve in that church as you progress. But this evening I want to consider with you a very practical message. And it was the desire behind these messages, especially in the first three messages, to be very practical in the things that we are coming to deal with. Things that you will face as a Christian in your walk. And I want to consider with you this evening the subject of the struggles of the church. The struggles in the church. Now what is the burden behind this message? Well, It is possible for you to find, and if you're in a free Presbyterian church you have, you have found a biblically structured church. And it is possible also then to become involved in that church, and I hope and I pray that you do so. And yet even though you find a biblically structured church, and you're now getting involved in that church, it is possible that due to the struggles of church life, that you would leave that church And you would go somewhere else. I'll not ask for a show of hands. But I ask you the question. Can you think about somebody that you have known. That has been a part of a biblical church. And been involved in that church. And yet struggles have come into that church. And what have they done? They have simply left. All of us at least I believe could think of one person. And perhaps even many more. That have chosen to leave their church. You see we live in a day when it's easy come and easy go. And people do not stick it out when difficulties arise in their church. It's easier to pick up your belongings and leave. Now why is this an important subject? Well, if you have this attitude where you can just pick things up and leave when the going gets tough in your congregation, then you will forever, for the rest of your life, be moving congregation. Things might go well for three or five years, but inevitably trouble will come. Either personally to you or trouble will come into the congregation itself. It does so in every church as we will come to see. And what will your response be? To leave. And you'll go to another church. And then you'll spend a while in that church and trouble will arise. And then you'll spend a year looking for another sound biblical church. And then you'll join that church. And then trouble will come and you'll move. And you'll become just a spiritual gypsy Moving from church to church to church. Never truly being able to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. People who do this. Who wander. Who church hop when trouble comes. They flounder spiritually. They they never seem to truly grow and truly progress in the Christian walk. And so it is vital for you in your youth. To understand and to develop an understanding of how you are to think and deal with the struggles that will inevitably come 
as you seek to be a part of a local congregation. Now this evening I want you to consider with me three things. The first thing that you need, as you are now involved in a church, you need to have a realistic assessment of the church of Jesus Christ. A realistic assessment. And then secondly, we're going to consider some real life difficulties that you may face in your congregation. And then thirdly, we're going to consider some right attitudes that you ought to possess if you want to be and stay in a congregation. But first of all, the realistic assessment of the church. Now, whenever a problem arises in the church of Jesus Christ in a local congregation, people will react in various ways. Some people react in anger. They get angry at the sin or the circumstance that has arisen. They get angry at the people that have caused it, or they get angry at things not being dealt with, and so on. Other people react in indifference. They're not really invested in the congregation. They come just to warm the pew. And so it doesn't matter to them. As long as there's a preacher standing in the pulpit, they will come and go. And they react with indifference. Other people react with fear. They wonder what's going to happen. And they begin to be be worried in their own heart and soul. But one of the main ways that I have seen and watched people react, especially among younger Christians, is that they react with shock. They are horrified to think that a church that had been so unified, a church that had been so blessed of God, a church that they have thoroughly enjoyed and has enriched them spiritually, they are shocked to see that any trouble could ever come in to that congregation. They just cannot believe that certain people would behave or act in certain ways or that a certain procedure would be carried forth by oversight and so on. And they are shocked to their core. This can lead them to great discouragement. And often as it becomes a discouragement to them, they leave. They look over and they see greener pastures. They look over and perhaps, rightfully, they look and they see a better church at that moment. A church that isn't going through the same problems. A church that perhaps is in the ascent of its ministry and going through those golden days of unity and blessing. And they think to themselves, well, what's happening in my church? This, this just cannot be the way that church is. And so I'm going to leave and find a true church where there is no problems because surely that is the way that the church is meant to be. Now, I'm not saying in any way that we should somehow excuse sin in church. I'm not saying that somehow we should excuse any church having problems. But tonight we need to have a realistic assessment that difficulties and problems will come. And young person, you will face them. You will face them. And you will have to deal with them. So let's get a realistic assessment of the churches. Turn, first of all, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. Here is a church in the New Testament, the church at Corinth, and they had a scandalous act of sin in the church. In verse number 1 of chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, sexual sin, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. Now, I don't need to expand on that any further this evening, but could you imagine being in the church at Corinth? Could you imagine being in that church and seeing that sin being flaunted in the congregation? And that sin then that the congregation weren't actually dealing with. 
And Paul writes to them, a New Testament biblical church, and he writes to them to rebuke them for not dealing with the sin. Now they do come to deal with it. They put this man out of fellowship. And I believe Paul then writes in 2 Corinthians to bring that man back into fellowship when he has thoroughly repented of that sin. But nonetheless, this was a heinous sin. Something that even the Gentiles, the pagans, wouldn't practice. And yet it was being done by professing Christians in the church. And the church was being so slow in dealing with sin amongst its ranks. That's a serious problem. It's a serious problem. And it would make many a Christian today up and leave the church that they are in. Then we turn to uh, Galatians, the book of Galatians chapter 2. And I'll read here verse number 11. And you can follow on. Galatians 2 verse 11. Paul writes, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him. I challenged him to the face because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. But when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were off the circumcision. And the other Jews disassembled likewise with him. Insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away with their dissimulation. What happened here in the church there at Antioch? Well, sectarianism came into the church. That division that the gospel of grace was meant to take away between Jew and Gentile. And Peter who was the apostle to the Gentiles. That had been given that vision of the the veil or the, the sheet coming down before him. And how God had removed all of the restrictions of the ceremonial law. So there was no unclean or clean foods. And that meant that the Gentiles no longer were clean or unclean before the Jew. And that was to bring Jew and Gentile into one church, one body, one faith and one baptism. And yet Peter, under peer pressure from a party within the church, a church party. These believing Pharisees, as it said in Acts 15. He separates himself. He literally does not sit down at the same table to eat with them. That's a, that's a horrible thing to do. To bring sectarianism into our churches. And rightfully, you and I would get angry. You and, you and I would rightfully say, there's disunity in that church. The leader, the church minister in many ways, the apostle, the oversight. He's dividing the body of Christ. He also had such an influence that many other of the believing Jews went with him, separated themselves, and even Barnabas, the great encourager, the one who went and brought Paul, the Greek, or the Jew and the Greek, into fellowship with the church. And yet he caused division. So there was sectarianism in that church. Philippians chapter 4, Paul writes this wonderful book to the Philippians. In chapter 4, in the verse 2, he says, I beseech Eudeus and beseech Senteke that they be of the same mind in the Lord. I would love to have been in that church meeting where the letter of the Apostle Paul was being read. And, you know, over at this side of the room, we have Eudeus. And over at this side of the room, we have Senteke. And perhaps they're like shooting daggers at each other with their, with their looks during the service. And perhaps they're serving food and they're not getting on. They're fighting in the kitchen of the church. And the letter is read out. And Paul addresses them specifically. Be of the same mind. There's division. There's disunity. In the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. A church 
that did not have unity between its members, that obviously was so noticeable and so public that Paul had to write to them publicly and rebuke them. Then also in Revelation chapter number 2, as you read through the seven churches of Revelation, as John writes and the Holy Spirit writes on to these churches through John, there's seven churches, six of them are rebuked, only one church is fully commended without rebuke. And he writes on to the first church, and what does he say unto them? Listen, you've left your first love. Now think of that. There is a New Testament church established under the oversight of the apostles and elders and the prophets who were working at that time. And yet Paul, or sorry, John is writing here by the Holy Spirit and says, You're lukewarm. You're a lukewarm church. If we read that letter as a report about a church, if your friend come up to you and said, listen, yeah, there's a, there's a biblically structured church. They, you know, you can get involved in that church. They, they, they do things right according to the Bible. But listen, they are so lukewarm. They are so lukewarm in their religion. You wouldn't go. <laughs> you wouldn't even try them out. And yet here is a New Testament church that had grown lukewarm. Then also as well, in verses 14 to 15, that was the church at Ephesus, but now also on to the church at Pergamos in verse number 14, but I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who have taught Balak to, to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed unto idols and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Here is a church, and they're being rebuked because false teachers have been permitted and allowed to come into the church. Now again, I am not trying to excuse sin. And the reason why the Holy Spirit records these in Scripture is that each of these sins were being rebuked. Paul was rebuking the church in Corinth. Paul was rebuking the church at Philippi. Uh, Paul then rebuked Peter and so on. And here we have the Spirit of God rebuking the churches there in Asia Minor. And so it's not as if sin can simply go you know, unnoticed or undealt with. But what I'm trying to help you see is we need to have a realistic assessment of the church. That as you are involved in that church, you will inevitably see sin you will inevitably see disunity you will inevitably hear at times things that Christians perhaps believe that are not right but that is not a cause for you to simply throw in the towel and to go to another place of greener pastures it's not to be used as an, as an excuse for you to get up and simply leave a church that is being faithful to the word a church that is striving to have pure doctrine and proper governance and biblical worship. And yet, my friends, is it not often the case that people look around them when their church is in a bit of turmoil and they simply leave? They get up and go. We must always be careful as to how we think and how we speak concerning the church of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 45, a beautiful, beautiful psalm, one of my favorite psalms. You have the description 
through this psalm of the Messiah. And then when it comes to the latter part of this psalm, you have the description of the Messiah's bride. And notice how the Messiah describes his bride in Psalm 45 in the verse number 11. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty. He desires thy beauty. Psalm 45 verse 11. He is thy Lord, worship thy him. Do you know what Christ sees when he looks upon his church? He sees a beautiful church. He sees a church that he loves. And it's very easy to get sucked away by people who would try to act spiritual. And whenever you would perhaps think about leaving your church, you'll always have that person who will come along and try and persuade you to leave and say, look at all the faults in that church. Look at all the problems in that church. And they'll criticize and criticize and criticize. And yet, my friend, what does Christ think? He thinks that the church, even in the midst of all of its sin, he thinks that the church is beautiful. He loves his bride. He loves his church. It may not be so common here, but in Northern Ireland, there's always a circuit of preachers that go around. They're revivalist preachers. I'm not knocking revival, but they're revivalist preachers. They're always trying to stir people up in their emotions. And they'll come into different towns and villages and so on, and they'll begin to preach against, you know, the churches of that town. Now, again, I'm not saying you can't preach against churches and so on. You can't call out apostate denominations. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking again about biblically structured churches. And they'll pick holes in that church and pick faults in that church. And it makes them sound so wonderful and good. But it verges verges on, on blasphemy. That they would be so coarse in how they speak about the bride of Jesus Christ. Young person, the church is not perfect. No church that you're in will be perfect. This is the realistic assessment that I'm trying to give you tonight. But I pray that you would realize that it is a serious thing to leave and to move on. Now, I trust that I'm I'm trying to make it clear. If you are in an apostate denomination, a church that does not have purity of doctrine, a church that does not have proper governance, a church that does not have biblical worship, then yes, leave. Leave politely leave respectfully and lay out your acknowledgments of why you're leaving but if you're in a congregation that is seeking to be faithful in those areas and yet there's still faults and feelings in that congregation it's not an excuse just to get up and go to somewhere that you think is better otherwise you will do that for the rest of your life the rest of your life now what are or let me just say, point you back to Acts 15 before I finish that point. I read Acts 15 for that purpose to show you the conflict that was even in the early church. And it's amazing in this chapter, it's very interesting. You read of conflict, you read of resolution, and then you read of conflict with no re- resolution. The, the conflict that happened was the debate where the believing Pharisees were coming down and saying, these Gentiles need to be circumcised. The presbytery, the gathering of the apostles and elders in Jerusalem said, no, the, the only things we're going to require of them is there in verse number 20. They send out letters. The church has wonderful peace. It's been resolved. And yet Paul and Barnabas, they're about to embark on their missionary journey. And there's more conflict between them. And they divide and there's no resolution at that time. That was in the early church. That was with Paul. 
That was with Barnabas. What do you and I expect from our churches today? I pray that we would have a realistic assessment. But secondly, what are then some of the real life difficulties that you will face? Now, I could never go through an entire list of the difficulties that you will face. But I have picked the three most common. The three most common that you will face. And again, I want this to be practical. I want you to be able to take the lessons learned from these meetings and to go back to your faithful congregations and stay and stick with those congregations for the rest of your life. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, just like a, a marriage. You'll, you'll write out the storms that you may find in those congregations. And so what are a few real life difficulties? Well, the first one is that you will have difficulties with other people. You will have difficulties with other people. Now I point you back to Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas, this missionary band that had seen wonderful things done for God. Churches planted, people converted, born again Elders established in the churches. Just a powerhouse for God. And as they went on one of their missionary journeys. A a cousin of Barnabas called John Mark. For whatever reason turned back. Now we, we are not told if he left of his own accord. We're not told if he was sent back. But for whatever reason he had to leave at that time. He had to leave. And so it comes to the second missionary journey and Paul says, John Mark's not coming. No way. And I'll fill in perhaps what I think some of the background was. Well, he left us the first time. He, he, he doesn't deserve to come with us the second time. If he quit once, he'll quit twice. No, this is too early for him. Barnabas on the other side, no, he wanted to take John Mark. Now, the Holy Spirit does not tell us who was right or wrong. Yes, later... Paul would write later on and say, John Mark, bring him. He's now profitable to me in the ministry. So I don't think there was a debate over whether John Mark could be restored or not. I don't think Barnabas was was saying, yes, ministers of the gospel can be restored. And Paul was saying, no, ministers of the gospel can't be restored. I think the debate was over the timing of the restoration. The timing of it. And Paul was saying, it's too early. It's too early for him. He's not profitable at this time. But he would later on say, after a time, yes, he is. But Barnabas was saying, yes, he is. We can restore him now. That's what I believe the debate was over. The Holy Spirit does not say who was right over the timing of it. So why did they disagree? Were these not spirit-filled men? Were they not godly men? Were they not men who knew the mind and will of God? Why did they disagree? Now again... This is my opinion on the matter. I believe it was as simple as this. That this was a personality clash. This was a personality clash. I've done a study recently on the life of Paul as I've been preaching through the book of Acts to our Williams Lake congregation. And I also did a study on the life of Barnabas. And they're very different people. Paul is just that just that man filled with zeal and determination and strength of mind and character and resolve and he gets beat up and he picks himself and he walks on. Barnabas, I I believe, is a more people person in that way. He's of a tender heart. And you see that in in Acts chapter 5 when he sells the field that he has and he comes in and just lays it all at the apostles' feet. 
And he's just willing to be used of the church in any regard as a servant. He, he, he's just a gracious, lowly man. Now, both of these men with their personalities, again, the Holy Spirit does not say one was right and one was wrong. But when it came to John Mark being brought back into the ministry, you can see Barnabas saying, listen, bring him along. Help him, build him up, strengthen him. And you can see Paul equally as right saying, no, it's too early. Not yet. It's personality difference. And when you get involved in your church, there will inevitably be personality clashes. And I would say that even in the church, more than anywhere else, there will be personality clashes. Why is that? Well, if you think of any club that you can join right say you join a local hockey team but you're all there you know you're probably at the same athletic build you're probably at the same age you're, you're probably going through the same university or college you live in the same neighborhood you're from the same social class because you're playing hockey and so on you're, you're roughly going to have the same type of personality you like to skate up to people and knock them out and so on but you think about another thing, an automotive club that you can join. And again, you're going to be perhaps older in life because you've got money and you've now got a, a car and you're into your cars. And again, you're that type of mindset and personality. And people with a certain personality tend to gravitate to certain activities and things. But not with the church. We are brought from every different social class. We are brought from every different culture. We are brought from every different background, at every different age group, and we're all put in the one building and we're told we have to do church. That's not an easy thing. Now the Lord, because of the working of the Spirit in the heart, brings the love of the saints. And we are united and bonded together. But there still can be a personality clash. Somebody comes to doing a certain thing in the church, say a church cleaning day. And there's people, you know, and they just are sweeping and then talking for five minutes. And there's other men that come along and it is like laser focus, get this job done, 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 done. Different personality and they can clash. You can say, what are you doing? Get that brush, pick it up, do something. And the other person is just kind of standing there as if he works for the government, you know, taking a 15 minute break every 15 minutes. No offense to government workers in the room, Caleb especially. Not that you do that. No, we, but, we, we work for 20 minutes and we, we stop for yeah, that's it. <laughs> there you go. There's an honest confession. But a personality clash. Again, in terms of ministry, I'm, I'm the type of guy, grew up on a farm, it's, it's get it done. There's no excuses. You could not give my dad an, an excuse as to why you would not have the job done. There's no excuses. It has to get done. That's the way I work. There's other people and they work differently. They like to be a bit more methodical and have everything planned out exactly to the minute detail before they start something I'm more let's just start this get it started and let's just work this as we get out or go on personality clashes and wherever you go in church wherever you're at in the kitchen out working moving chairs in worship you'll have personality clashes and how you get through that is very simply do not be easily offended and learn to forgive and let things go. That is something that we are not good at today. We are not good at letting things go. We hold on to things. We say to ourselves, I want that apology. I want that person to say sorry. 
And it could have been just an off-the-cuff comment. Let it go. Now we'll come in a moment to consider some of the attributes that you might have. Or some that you need in order to be in a church. And some of those godly attributes you need to have. And so I'm speaking here more in the vernacular. But you need to let things go. You cannot hold Every comment that is made. That person might have had a rough day. And they're stressed. And okay they shouldn't have spoke in such a tone. Or in a manner. But, but let it go. Let it go. If it, if it comes and it happens time and time and time, and time again. And it's becoming a, a fault within their life. Then, then yes go and go through the biblical pattern of Matthew 18. Gracefully and tenderly. But learn to let things go. Learn just to value the peace of the church more than getting one over on another person. But also as well, another difficulty. A difficulty with your pastor. A difficulty with your pastor. What is one of the common things that people can say concerning the ministry under their pastor? I'm not getting fed. I'm getting nothing from his ministry. I'm getting nothing from that pulpit. Or he doesn't encourage me. And so on. How do you resolve that? Now for some here this evening as I say that. That might sound quite trivial. And yet. That is probably the number one complaint that I have heard. From people in Canada and in Northern Ireland. Concerning their ministers. The number one complaint. I'm not getting fed. So how do you overcome that? Well first of all I think you have to be honest. That usually there is something deeper going on in the heart. There is a reason why you're not getting fed. And I first think you have to examine yourself. You have to examine yourself. You have to ask yourself, well, did the pastor, you know, say something to me that offended me? Did he do something to me that hurt me? And now I'm holding that against him and I'm, I'm, I'm not listening to him now in the pulpit. And that's hindering me getting fed. Is there something deeper going on? And usually there is. Usually there is. But how do you overcome that? Well, first of all, you should treat it with the seriousness that it deserves. It is a serious thing to say that you're under the ministry of a man who is in a biblically structured church and you're not getting fed by the ministry. It's a serious thing. And you need to go to the Lord in prayer about that. And you must seek the Lord daily about that. And you must earnestly pray that God would deal with your heart. Reveal whatever sin there might be in your heart. That perhaps is a hindrance to you receiving the word. And you must pray for him. That the Lord would abundantly bless him. As he prepares and as he preaches. That he would be so full of the Holy Ghost. And let me tell you, if you pray that, something's going to happen. Either God will change you or God will change him. Something will happen. And you can come to a stage where you can enjoy the ministry again. But what do you do? Do you simply get up and leave? No. You don't. You take it to the Lord in prayer. And I, I, I fear that, as I said last evening, we... we we have the access now to the internet and the podcasts and to sermon audio. And we can go on and we can select everything that we like. The style of voice, the style of preaching, 
the style of accent, everything. And not just that, but we can select the sermon that we want to hear. And we can have a whole download page of sermons that interest us. But remember this young person, every time you download a sermon, you're listening to a sermon that you want to hear. But every time you walk into your church, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and prayer meeting night, you're hearing a sermon from a man that God in his providence has put over you that you need to hear. You need to hear. And it may not be the best sermon you have heard that week. It may not be the most articulate sermon you have heard that week. It may not be in a, in, a, in a subject that you are most interested in in that time of your doctrinal study. But it is the sermon that you need to hear. And perhaps it's not the sermon that will have its application at that moment. But it will be in the years to come. Trust in the providence of God in your life. And trust in the power of the preaching of the word in a biblically faithful church. That what you are hearing is God by his providence giving you that word. And so, when a new pastor comes to the church down the road. And that church perhaps is going really well. He's a young guy, young family, charismatic influence and so on. And he just has that way of, of relating to you. And he, he, he speaks in perhaps the younger vernacular. And you can understand him better and so on. And you feel tempted. I, I would grow under his ministry. I, and you probably would. I would be really blessed under his ministry. And you probably would. But the question you ought to ask. Is that where God wants me to be? Do I have any real reason for leaving the church where there is a man of God faithfully preaching the word. I would also say to you that something that you can cultivate in your life is learning to listen to your pastor. Again, I made reference to this last night. But you're going on to Sermon Audio and you're listening to uh, a man that is preaching in your style. Okay, It's just like going on and listening to, to music. There are certain people whose music you like because they, they change key. You know, in the last verse, and you like that. Or they play in a certain style, and you like that style, and you listen to them. It's just, it can be the same for ministers. And there's preachers listen that I listen to. And I listen to them because they preach in a certain style, and I like their style. But you should cultivate in your heart how to learn to listen to your own pastor. Take his sermon and break it down. He's going to do basically the same thing every week. He's going to come in, he'll have his introduction, he'll probably more than likely in that introduction have the subject that he is seeking to deal with, he'll have throughout his sermons the points and you'll learn sometimes he will alliterate his points and you'll learn to listen out for that and follow it. Other times he might just speak more freely but you still see the transition perhaps from verse to verse to verse and so on. Other times he might just use one word each time and speak in that. But you'll learn to listen to your pastor. And when you learn to listen to your pastor, then you can feed yourself on the word of God. It's a bit like as you're a child and you were given a knife and fork. And you had to learn the knife and fork in order to be able to eat. Learn how to dissect and listen to your pastor's sermon. But also learn to encourage him. Learn to encourage him. Learn how to go to your pastor and not just 
Encourage him for the sake of encouraging, but give him a real encouragement. Say, that spoke to me. That ministered to me. Thank you for the word. Learn also as well how to talk to your pastor. And speak with him, even about the sermon. Now, let me give you one personal advice from pastor to congregation. Don't do that at the church door. (laughs) Don't do it at the door of the church. We love you, we want to talk to you, but we don't want to do it at the door of the church. I'm sorry, maybe Mr. Saunders is different, but you're trying to get everybody out of the church. But come to him after the service, or after the evening service, and say, I had a question about this. Can you answer that? Don't just Google it. Use the man in front of you that God is using for your own benefit. I pray that you would, if you ever come to a point where there is difficulties with your pastor, that you would not simply throw in the towel and try and go off again to greener pastures, but that you would put your roots down, realizing this is where God wants me to be, and I'm going to pray about this, and I'm going to pray about him, and I'm going to get to a point, by God's grace, where I will be fed under this ministry. But then also the third difficulty there can be is difficulties with a small church and difficulties with a large church. Difficulties with other people, difficulties with your pastor, difficulties with a small church or a large church. In the small church, there's a lot of pressure put on you. You're perhaps the one carrying the weight. And it just seems to be that everything falls upon your shoulders and you're just the person that has to do everything. Again, as it is often said, 80% of the work in churches is done by 20% of the people. And you're relied on to do a lot of work. And then in the midst of all of that work, there's not perhaps many people that you can fellowship with. And then as you look about the congregation and you realize there's nobody there, really, if you're age group, you're thinking to yourself, well, who will I marry? Who will I get engaged to? Maybe I should go to that bigger church where there's more men or more women and more potential then for me to get married. But is that really a biblical reason for leaving a church? Is that really the right reason that God would have you leave? Again, a biblically structured church that you're involved in? I don't believe that's right. I believe that's giving in. I believe that's quitting. Now, don't get me wrong. There's other things you can do to try and find that spouse. You might go to an additional meeting during the week. You might hear of a, a youth group in another biblical church and you could go there if your own youth group is not on and, and seek, to make a sp- seek to meet a spouse. Those things are good. I'm not bar- uh, saying that you shouldn't be interested in finding a spouse. But again, it comes down to trusting the Lord. That God, I am here in the place that is acceptable to you. I am involved in a church that is pleasing to you. And I'm just going to trust you, Lord. I'm going to trust you in your providence. Yes, putting feet to my prayers. But I'm going to trust your providence that you will bring into my life the partner that I am to marry. And you know what? It may save you a lot of wasted years. And it may save you a lot of wasted opportunities. And I pray that you wouldn't just, again, in the midst of a smaller church, become discouraged. How often the people in Prince George said to me, When I went there as a student over the summers, they said, listen, if every family that came into this church with a young, every young family that came into this church and said to us, we're not going to stay because there's no young families. If they all had to stay, this church would be packed. Why not be the young person 
that brings in the other young people. Why not be the young person that whenever you see a young person perhaps coming in with their family for the first time, you're the person that's going to go over and shake their hand and say, it's so good to see you. What's your name? Thanks for coming. Hope to see you again. Be the person that will be there to bring in others into a biblically faithful church. How often people sacrifice a biblically structured church for a bigger church just so they can have all the amenities of a bigger church. But be the one who starts it. Be the pioneer, as you will. Be where the Lord would have you be. But then there's also difficulties with the larger church. You don't have, perhaps, the same connection with the pastor. The relationship may not be as close and personal because there's, you know, maybe 150, 200 people, 250 people, and it becomes difficult for you to get to know the pastor one-on-one. Perhaps you are in the church when it's small and the pastor has more time to speak with you and then the church grows and there's just not enough as much time the same and you begin to feel a bit more isolated again my friend realize where the Lord would have you be and plant your feet there it's not a reason for simply getting up and moving on to greener pastures people move church and church hop for their own self-interests. And you know what they end up? They end up empty at the end of it. And they end up usually without their own interests ever being met anyway. Those are some of the real life difficulties that you will face. And if you are to face them, you need the Lord to help you in every single one. Ultimately, they are spiritual problems that must be dealt with spiritually. Not with a carnal attitude of just picking up and, and going on. Now, if you are to be in this church and you're to be involved and you're to stick around in that church, you need also the right attitudes. You need the right attitudes. You need to have the character of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there were several that I want to mention, but for time I will mention one that I believe is the most important. For you to stay in a church consistently year after year after year, I believe the essential ingredient that you need is humility. Humility. Let me show you this in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Well, first of all, let me read to you again Philippians 4 verse 2. I beseech Eudeus and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, what is that mind? Okay. What's the mind, right? You could say, well, they have to be in agreement. I don't think that's it. Paul isn't saying agree over a certain issue. Paul is saying, listen, Syntyche, Eudeus, you have the wrong attitude. You have the wrong mindset. And there's a mindset that you both need to adopt. And it's not a mindset found within yourselves. It's a mindset of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so go back to Philippians chapter 2. To find out what this mindset is. It says in verse 1. If there be any cons- if there be therefore any consolation in Christ. If any comfort of love. If any fellowship of the spirit. If any bowels and mercies. Fulfill ye my joy. That ye be like minded. The same exhortation to those two women. Be like minded. Having the same love. Being of one accord and of one mind. Again one mind. What is this mindset? 
Well, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man in his own things, but every man also in the things of others. What is that mindset? It's a mindset of humility. And from that instruction, Paul goes on to point them to Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you. Let this mind of humility be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And here he begins to expound the wonderful doctrine of Christ's humiliation. And he points us to Jesus Christ and says, Who being in the form of God, who was God himself, who was the second person of the Godhead, who did not rob anything from God in terms of glory or inequality because he was equal with the Father. He was equal with his Father in terms of glory and honor and majesty. And yet, even with that wonderful, majestic position that he had, what did he do? He made himself of no reputation. He took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. There is no greater example of humility than the person of Jesus Christ himself. He so humbled himself when he became a man and took upon him that form, not just of a man, but on that form of a servant. He could have come as a king, as a man, but as a king to be worshipped, and yet he didn't. He came as a servant. To serve. And in the midst of that service, he humbled himself further and he learned. That's what it means thereby, became obedient. It's not that he was disobedient to the Father's will, but he learned obedience. He learned what it was in his humanity to receive instruction of the Father and to go through it and to do it and to perform it. Even unto the death of the cross. He showed for you and I the greatest display of humility and the greatest extent that humility had ever reached when he went to the cross of Calvary. And that's why he loves his church. That's why he cares for his church. Because we have a humble Savior. And even though in the midst of his humiliation he was despised and rejected of men, If you're despised by people in your congregation, perhaps you're rejected by people in your congregation. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't leave you. Why should you leave the church? He didn't leave his people. Didn't desert his disciples even when they deserted him. He went back to Peter and gathered Peter, restored him. He went back to the Sea of Galilee and gathered his flock in again. And even when they had forsaken him, here is our humble Savior gathering in the church. And so, how are you to act in the church of Jesus Christ with humility? When that person says something to you, and they perhaps are are rude to you in some way, they mean it or they don't mean it, you just walk away and go, I must have had a bad day, let it go. And something happens with the oversight of the church and they make a mistake and they get it wrong, which perhaps they will. You say to themselves, well, I'm glad I'm not in their position because I don't think I could do any better than what they did because I'm a man just like them. It's humility. Whenever you're faced with the idea of you're not getting fed from the pulpit, not getting anything from the ministry of the church, well, do you know what? 
He's a better preacher than me. That's humility. And that keeps the church going. If you could think of a moment with me of a car engine, right? Car engines made up of various metallic parts, okay? What happens if you run that engine without oil? What do those metal parts do? They chew each other up, smash into one another, and they eventually heat up the engine till it explodes. And you end up with a piston running out the side of your engine block. But you simply add in oil. Those same parts moving in the same direction at the same speed at the same time, what happens? It doesn't heat up and explode. Because the oil keeps them going and helps everything move. And such is humility in the church. It's like the oil in the midst of the church. Those people that without humility would heat each other up and get each other annoyed. And would hit off one another and so on and eventually explode with humility. They can operate and work. Oh young person, if you want to have unity in your church, if you want to have blessing in your church if you want to be fed of the ministry in your church adopt a heart of humility in many ways when people leave a church again a biblically structured church and they leave perhaps for a reason you know they're upset with somebody or upset with the leadership do you know what they're really saying i'm better than that church i'm better than them and it really comes down to that it really is that petty it really is Now again, as I said at the start, there are times whenever you are to leave. We believe in the doctrine of separation. And if you are in a church that is compromised in its doctrine or in its government or in its worship, then leave. Yes, leave gracefully and quietly and so on. But still, come out from among them and be separate. But when you're in a church that has those things and has been faithful to the word of God, stick with it. Stay by the stuff and stay by the Lord's people. Looking always to Jesus Christ. And you know what? Every time you're offended, every time something happens to you that would make you want to leave that church, I promise you that if you go home and think about your Savior and think about His humiliation, you'll be so humbled to think of what Christ has done for you. You'll say to yourself, I I could never leave when I think of all that my Savior has done. I want you, as a young person, I want you to find a biblically sound church. I want you and your families and your children to get involved in those churches with all of your energy and with all of your heart. But I want you to stay. I want you to stay in those churches. Because that is how you will grow. And that is how you will mature. And even in the midst of the difficulty, is that not even God? sanctifying you is that not even god using that difficulty for his own glory his own glory did not two missionary teams come out of one in the midst of strife and when there's strife in the church can god not bring something glorious and good out of it he can young person learn to trust him learn to depend on him and i pray that over your life that as you lie on your deathbed That you will be able to say, I stuck by the church of Jesus Christ through every dark time and every good time. And that when you enter into heaven, the Lord will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant.
I'll hand back over to our brother now. The Lord bless. I just would also say in closing, I know I've had already many conversations with you these past few days about the meetings and about the subject. Some of you have questions. Again, I just want to make myself available to you all. I'd be glad to answer any questions you have about the messages. And I also want to thank you all for making the sacrifice to come here. Some of you have had to schedule off work. Some of you have had to move work around. Some of you are coming in the evenings. I, I really thank you for coming to these meetings. And I have been praying so much for you. And I, I pray that you would understand too the care that I have for you in my heart. And I pray that that comes across in these messages, brother. Thank you. Thank you very much, brother Andrew. <clears throat> really appreciate these pertinent, very pertinent messages. Uh, there's many important elements that were talked about tonight and uh, that we need to seriously, earnestly pray about. So what we're going to do now is to split up into two groups and just have a moment of prayer. Uh, is that, would that 15 minutes? Yeah, so we'll probably go to about 9.30, just about then, yeah. 9.30. So we'll split it up into two groups, then we'll come back here and just sing one last hymn and close. Right? And then after that, we'll go downstairs to the basement and, uh, and practice for tomorrow.